I am so happy to be here. Um, thankful for the opportunity to come and hang out with you and have fun with you and sit around the word together. In response to what Sandy said about my accent, um, we started classes. I teach at Faith Baptist Bible College, and we just finished our second week of classes. And one of my classes, Women's Ministries Foundations, I get a lot of girls for the first time in my courses. And a previous, a, a previous student was asking one of my new students what she thought of my class. And she said, oh, I just love her voice. It just lulls me to sleep. <laughs> that is not the goal. And if y'all don't mind staying awake tonight, that would be helpful. I thought that was pretty funny. I don't think she knows that I know that she said that. I'm going to be keeping my eye on her. And then I just, when, during all these announcements, I have all these funny thoughts come into my head, and I just can't get up and say them all and be sassy, but... Um, I do have to respond to Phil talking about Julie being gone and his his willingness and eagerness to help us. Are you still in here, Phil? Okay, so I got here, and Julie always has linens for me, and I don't have to bring my own. It's just a nice thing to do for a speaker, you know, and she does that for me. And I got here, and he said, you got linens, right? And I was like, no, sorry, I didn't know I was supposed to bring them. All right, I'll go get you some. So he goes and finds me linens and gives them to me. I gave you two towels. I said, okay. So I get to my room and I make the bed and I have two bath towels, which is great. But I'm like, oh, he's gonna really think I'm high maintenance if I ask him for a washcloth. <laughs> but I don't have anything to get my makeup off with and I don't think they want me to use the bath towel for that. So anyway, he's great. When I told him, I said, I don't mean to be high maintenance, but could I have a washcloth? And he said, well, I just heard this. I don't know if he was watching something or listening to something. Some, some snarky comment from one person to another about you must be from the South, you want a washcloth. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a regional thing. Anyway. The first time I spoke here was in 2017, and I had only lived in my little house on the prairie for a year at that time. And I was still kind of figuring out the land of corn and windmills and Iowa nice, and I didn't know any of you. I knew a few ladies from Maranatha, um, a few people from the school. But I've come for several retreats since, since then, and it feels like coming home when I come here. There's just a warmth. I love your energy. I tell you what, after that last song you sang, All I Need Is Christ, I thought I could just go home right now. That was it. That was plenty. Uh, and then Sandy got up and preached the message on being a glory grabber, so <laughs> guess I'll let y'all out early. <laughs> Not really. Um, for those of you who are new to this retreat, you have joined a group of ladies who love to sing, who love to have fun, and who loved to sit around the Word together. So I hope it's a great weekend for you. 
You know, sometimes I do as icebreakers, crazy traumatic things that have happened, traveling on retreats, and sometimes y'all come up to me and say, so what's happened? You know, like some of you remember I was locked in a bathroom, then I was locked in a shower. I mean, I have no big new traumas to tell you. I was very thankful, I know it's disappointing, right? I was thankful and breathed a sigh of relief when I came out of the men's restroom right before the service, which is allowed. And <laughs> I have this terrible fear. You know, you get, you get to a retreat session and you get mic'd up and you get the little box right here. I have this fear that one day I'm just gonna go in and yank the pants down to go to the bathroom and that very expensive mic is gonna go in the toilet. <laughs> so I'm always like, Remember the mic, remember the mic, remember the mic. So then you're holding it under your armpit, you know, and anyway, we made it out. I do not want to tell Phil or Seth, sorry, but I flushed the microphone. <laughs> let's open in prayer together and then let's study the word together. God, you have brought together just some amazing women and I just love being with them love their enthusiasm and their energy, and thank you for their passion for the word. Thank you how they, for how they have set aside this weekend um, together, together, to fellowship with one another, to sing, to have fun, and to hear your word. Lord, we ask for your help tonight. I know that I desperately need it, and I pray that you would give me freedom to share um, the things that have been on my heart, the way you've been working in my life over the past couple of years in this area. And I pray that your spirit would have freedom to work, to encourage, to challenge. And Lord, I know there are some women here tonight who are really hurting. I've heard just since I got here of one whose sister went to be with you last week and one whose husband passed away last week. And Lord, help us to minister to one another. And I pray that you would minister, that the God of all comfort would uphold each of these with your everlasting arms. We commit this time to you. We ask that you would be honored and glorified in your name. Amen. So while visiting our younger daughter this summer in the Atlanta area, one afternoon we decided to take a neighborhood walk. And that walk included our daughter Elena, her 13-month-old Jude, her four-year-old Foster, her German Shepherd Luna, her German Shepherd Gypsy, two leashes, my husband, and me. So we start on this walk. And do you know that there are parts of the country that are hilly? <laughs> this is a hilly neighborhood. And we're walking around this neighborhood and pretty quickly, little four-year-old Foster is about 30 feet ahead of us on his balance bike. And he turns around and I think he was surveying the competition. <laughs> and he pretty quickly ruled out Elena. She had the stroller, the baby, and one shepherd. And then he ruled out Abba, that's his grandfather, my husband, Dean. I think his legs looked really long and he was just trucking along and then his eyes rested on Mimi, yours truly. And he said, Mimi, I will race you to the next sign and the first one there is the fastest. 
and he turned around and took off without letting me answer. (laughs) Now, I'm not one to pass up on some good, healthy competition, so I quickly handed the leash of the second shepherd that I was in charge of, and I took off running after the four-year-old who's on a bike. (laughs) Now, this happened three or four times during the walk. I was always the one challenged to the race. Why is that, do you think? Mom had just finished a triathlon. Abba has long legs. And I think he thought, well, she's a grandma. Her legs are a little shorter than Abba's, and I'm way ahead. Now, I know if I don't tell you, you'll ask me afterwards who won. I think I let him win once, we tied once, He beat me fair and square once, and then he handed me the bike to carry while he ran. (laughs) But he considered the odds, and he chose me because he wanted to be the fastest and he wanted to be the best. Some of you may have loaded up your nieces and nephews or your children or your grandchildren in the past few weeks for one last summer trip to the pool, right? And the conversation in the back seat may have sounded something like, we're gonna have races and I'm gonna win because I'm the fastest. And then the other one may have responded, no, you're not, I'm bigger, I'm gonna win. And so on. The desire to be best in ability and accomplishment is easily observable in children, isn't it? But it's not limited to children. I don't know if any of you are tennis fans, but I've been watching uh, the U.S. Open the last couple of weeks. I'm a tennis player, play at a very low level of USTA, (laughs) and I enjoy watching it very much. And so while I've been grading or lesson planning or pretending I was, I've been watching some tennis. (laughs) And sometimes at the end of a very long rally, last night I watched a match It was the semifinals for the women, and there was one rally that was 40 hits. And sometimes at the end of one of those, one player will make an incredible play. They'll drop the ball right in the back corner, or they'll do a drop shot right over the net and get the point. And of course, the crowd erupts, but it is not uncommon to see that player do this. They are beckoning to the audience for more applause. Tell me how great I am. We don't just see it in sports, though. Our culture is pervaded with desires and attempts to be the best. We see it in athletics. We see it in the academic world. We see it in the corporate world. We see it in the fashion and beauty world. We see it in the world of possessions. And interestingly, it's not a problem that's new to our culture or new for our culture. It's been around forever. A long time ago, there was a king who was known throughout history for his building accomplishments. He rebuilt Babylon after the Assyrian Empire. 
He built 40-foot-tall walls around Babylon, and the tops of those walls were so wide that they could have chariot races on them. He constructed the gate of Ishtar, which had blue glazed bricks. Oh, I think I'm supposed to show you a picture here. Oh no, my picture went away. Oh my goodness, don't you write those points down yet. (laughs) I worked really hard on a picture. I must have saved the wrong copy of this. There was a nice picture of the gate of Ishtar, sorry. But he built that and it was covered with lions which represented, it was the sacred animal of the goddess Ishtar. He built a port. He decided he needed a new palace and he had it constructed in 15 days. And then he built hanging gardens for his wife who was homesick for her homeland. And those, it was like a a man-made mountain that had cascading waterfalls and terraced gardens. It became known as one of the wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. This same king also had a lot of military prowess. And we find him in Daniel chapter four, walking on the rooftop of his palace. Imagine, maybe he had his crown on and his regal robes and probably a train flowing behind it. And he said, is this not great Babylon that I have built by the power of my might? Do you hear the eyes and the mys? This man, this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, was claiming glory for himself for his great accomplishments. And interestingly, not too long before that, This same man, the same king, had glimpsed not his own glory, but the glory of God. Look with me in Daniel chapter 3. So just one chapter earlier, a few years earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar had built a gold gold image and it was 60 cubits high. That means absolutely nothing to me. So let, let me tell you this. This image, this golden image was as tall as a 10 story building. Now can you imagine it? It was as tall as a 10 story building and it was nine feet wide And it was either an image of himself or an image of a Babylonian god whom he worshiped. So he makes this image and then he sends out word and he gathers all of his political leaders together. And he has his herald make an announcement to them. Look at Daniel chapter three, verses five and six. I'll start with verse four. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now look at verse seven. So at that time, 
When all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Your verse there says twice, all the people, all the people, all the people accept, right? There was an exception here, and down in verse 12, we find some Chaldeans who come to King Nebuchadnezzar and they make accusations. That word there is a word that implies maliciousness. It literally means to eat or devour. And these Chaldean men came before the king and they said, King, this is what you commanded. And these Jewish men, whom we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not do what you said. The king was mad and he called them to himself and he said, like the wicked witch or the, the little fairy that came down, I'm gonna give you one more chance. Do y'all know that little song? Yes. I'm gonna give you one more chance and then I'm gonna throw you into the fiery furnace. And look at, look at their answer in chapter three, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we really have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. This is an affront to his pride and to his glorying in himself. And he orders that the furnace be heated seven times, hotter than normal. He has the three men bound. And as you know the story, he has them thrown into the fiery furnace. The author here includes a little detail for us. And I think it's a detail so that we don't excuse away the miracle. Like we don't talk ourselves into, well, it wasn't really that hot. It was just ashes. What happened? The men who threw them in actually died throwing them in because it was so hot. And then look with me at verse 24 of chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished by something. In verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he arose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the furnace? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. The author does not tell us specifically what it was about that fourth creature that made King Nebuchadnezzar say that. There was some sort of radiance, some sort of splendor, some sort of majesty, something about the fourth figure that Nebuchadnezzar had never seen before. And he said, that's, that's like the son of God. So he calls them out to come out and then he blesses their God in verse 26. And then look at verse 29. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking. He says, therefore, I make a decree 
that any people, nations, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Right? This is the same guy who in the next chapter is strutting across his palace roof saying, is this not great Babylon that I have made? And he has glimpsed the glory of God, but he forgot it. It didn't change his life. It didn't turn him into a glory giver. He continued to seek glory for himself. Interestingly, one chapter earlier, turn back to chapter two, he had again glimpsed the glory of God. In Daniel chapter two, the chapter starts out by telling us that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him. Maybe they made him afraid. He didn't understand them. And so in verse two, he calls together all of his people. He calls together the magistrates and the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. And he says to them, you need to tell me this dream. And they say, well, you tell us the dream and then we'll tell you the interpretation. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I think he couldn't remember it. Do you ever have a really good dream during the night and the next morning you can't think of what it was? I hate that. Sometimes I'm tempted to get up and write it down because I want to remember to tell it. Um, But he says, no, you tell me both or I'm going to cut you into pieces. He's really into cutting people in pieces and burn down your houses. And the men say to him, that is not possible. We cannot do that. And he says, okay, you're all going to be killed. And so his, his henchman starts killing all of them. Now, who's a part of this group who weren't there but are part of all of his people? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They've been promoted into leadership in the provinces at the end of chapter 1. And so when, they, when the henchman comes to get Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel says, what's going on? And he tells him. So Daniel says to his three friends, listen, I want you to pray and I want you to ask God in his mercy to reveal the dream to me so that our lives can be spared. So they pray and God answers the prayer and reveals to Daniel in a night vision what the dream was. So the henchman takes Daniel before the king and says, I, I, I found a guy. I found a guy who can do what you want. We'll pick it up there. So look with me in verse 26 of chapter 2. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen? Notice the are you able. And how does Daniel answer in verse 27? He says, this secret that you've demanded He says, no man can do this. But look at verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what he will do in the latter days. He said, listen, King, I can't, but God can. And God has shown you the future in this dream. And so he interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the dream of the image where every every part of the image is made out of a different metal. And then he explains to him that each part, each part of the image's body represents a different country, a different empire, and that each one of those will be destroyed 
and that then God will establish a kingdom that will not be destroyed. So he tells this to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now look at verse 47. I know I've got you kind of tracking through these chapters. Verse 47, look at King Nebuchadnezzar's response. The king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. What's happened? Two times he has glimpsed the glory of God. He has seen God as protector and deliverer. He has seen God as the revealer of secrets. And he's amazed in the moment, but it doesn't last. He has a short memory. It doesn't change his life. And he continues, as we saw in chapter four, as I mentioned in chapter four, he continues to seek glory for himself. We talked about how children strive to be noticed and recognized for their abilities and their accomplishments. We talked about how adults do it as well, now and evidently back then. Do you realize that that is not limited to unbelievers? Kind of ties into what Sandy said at the beginning in the introduction. Think of Luke 22, 24. The disciples are arguing about something. What are they arguing about? Who's gonna be the greatest? Can you imagine? We're a little more subtle in our glory grabbing than some of these people were. But we're not exempt from it. And if, if these, the disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, are having this little debate, I'm gonna be better than you. I don't think we're, we are exempt from it either. You and I might never say as brashly as Nebuchadnezzar did, look at this great Babylon that I have built by the power of my might. We might never say what the disciples say, I'm gonna be greater than you. And yet the reality is that all of us in our flesh naturally seek glory for ourselves. And when you initially hear that, you might think, I don't, I don't know that I do that. But I think Sandy's testimony is an example of how once we're aware of this and become sensitive to it, God can start showing us that glory grabbing is alive and well in our hearts. So the truth is my flesh naturally seeks glory for myself. So while we might never say what Nebuchadnezzar said or what the disciples said, we might be more subtle. We might camouflage our glory grabbing a little bit. Um, we often are looking for admiration and affirmation from people around us. We are often disappointed when our sacrifice or our service isn't noticed and acknowledged. No appreciation is expressed. Um, or sometimes we share how busy we are because that shows how important we are. 
All too often, I've realized that these patterns are patterns of my thinking and that these are flowing from a heart that is seeking glory for myself, seeking to elevate myself in some way. You know, you would think by the time a woman is in her 50s, just gave my age away. You knew that though, right? I'm a grandma. Um, You would think that by the time a woman is in her 50s, she would have figured this glory giving out and that she would be consistently and solely living for the glory of God. But I find that the battle, this battle in my flesh rages on day after day. And God has been, probably over the past year and a half, really kind of putting the squeeze on my life in this way and starting to convict me and show me how often, maybe not the words that I say, maybe not the actions that I do, but my, my motive, my desire, my thought is functioning as a glory grabber rather than a glory giver. So flip over back to Daniel chapter four to where we started. And we find in verse 29 that at the end of 12 months, I'll explain that in a minute, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. We're in Daniel 4, 29. This is where the king says, is this not great Babylon that I built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And in verse 31 to 33, you see that God at that time intervenes. God says, that's enough. That's enough out of you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And God intervened and God took the kingdom away from him for, as the scripture says, seven seasons, perhaps seven years. And he caused him to live out in a pasture like an ox eating grass. And he caused his hair to grow as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Do you know that's actually a psychological disorder? It's called boanthropy. You ever heard of that? It's a thing where people think they're a cow. (laughs) But I don't think this was simply a psychological disorder. This was God's chastening on Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, I've had about enough of your bragging. We're gonna stick you out there for a while. And he put him out there for seven seasons. Let me ask you a question. If God responded to my glory grabbing and your glory grabbing, as he responded to Nebuchadnezzar, how full would the pastures of Iowa be? It may seem harsh that God judged him this severely, but we've skipped over the beginning of chapter four and what happened there is that God warned him. God gave him a dream that this was going to happen. About, it was about a tree growing up and the tree being chopped down. And when Daniel interpreted it for him, Daniel told him, this is because you have become strong and mighty and God is going to cut you off And then he appeals to him to repent, to humble himself. Look at verse 27. 
This is at the end of Daniel interpreting the dream. He says, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. And perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So while when we, when we just hear the story, we think, wow, God is like full of wrath. But really, God was very merciful And God warned him. And God's man appealed to him. And then at the beginning of verse 29, what does it say? At the end of 12 months. How long did God give him to humble himself? A year. It reminds me of the story of David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up. How long did God give him before Nathan went and confronted him? At least a year. The baby was born. Your God, my God, is a merciful God. And while this is our natural tendency and this is true in all of our lives, he is coming alongside and his spirit is trying to point this out and show this to us. And as we yield to him, he will change us and help us to become glory givers. So everything that God had predicted through the dream happened. I want to pull out a couple of phrases to help you see the why of this. Look at verse 17b. We're still in chapter 4. Why did God do this? Look about halfway down in verse 17. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it to the lowest of men. Look at 25b. This is where Daniel is interpreting the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And at the very end of 25 till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Look at 32b. (laughs) Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Whenever you're studying narrative, our temptation is to moralize and to come up with, you know, be brave like David, uh, defeat your giants. But there there are ways to look for what does a narrative mean. And one of the ways is a repeated statement. So what do you think this narrative is about? God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that the Most High rules, that he is the one deserving of glory and not us. My God, your God, is the only true object of glory. How does this story end? Look in verse 34, still in Daniel chapter 4. At the end of the time, at the end of the seven seasons, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And then what did he do? And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him. What, What had he learned? He had learned that God is the Most High. Verse 35, or continuing in verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. 
He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand. Contrast briefly the focus of verse 34 and 35 with the focus of verse 30. Remember verse 30 is all the eyes and the mys. He is glory grabbing. He is focusing on what he's accomplished. And then after God's chastening hand, when his understanding returns to him, you see a completely different focus. The focus is on him and him alone. It's very fascinating to me that this scene in in Daniel chapter four is actually the testimony of a former glory grabber who is giving glory to God. Because look back at the beginning of chapter four. Starts out verses one through three. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. He starts out praising God and then he ends praising God, 34 and 35. And then in the middle, he tells the story about when he was a glory grabber. He starts in verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace and I saw a dream. This is a very rare instance in the Bible where a non-Jewish or a pagan king tells the story himself. It's a first-person narrative. He's not a Jew. He's not a believer, at least at the beginning. It's very unusual that he is telling the story himself, and I think it's God is allowing him to give his testimony. Here's what I was, and here's what God did. Here's what God did in my life. Nebuchadnezzar finally understood that God is the only true object of glory. From these verses, Daniel is, or Nebuchadnezzar, through Daniel's pen, is proclaiming that God is great, mighty, and everlasting. He is the most high God. This is what Nebuchadnezzar learned through this story. What a journey God brought Nebuchadnezzar through. We tend to look at chapter two and talk about that story in chapter three and talk about that story in chapter four. And I think it's true that God is preserving his people. Remember, he promised there would be a remnant. So in this captivity, some of these narratives, we see how God preserved Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. But there's a bigger theme here. Because in all of these narratives, we see him learning about the glory of God. Being a glory grabber and becoming a glory giver. What a journey God brought Nebuchadnezzar on. Can I ask you a question? Where are you in this journey? In other scriptures, we find clear instructions not to be glory grabbers, but to be glory givers, to glory in God alone. I'm gonna show you just a few of these. Isaiah 42, eight and 12 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. 
My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Let them that glory, glory, sorry, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. This passage shows us that God will not share his glory. So give glory to God. He says, my glory I give to no other. We see a similar truth in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. What? That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord. Exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. In this passage we see that nothing I am or have is deserving of glory. Not my riches, not my wisdom, not my might. Nothing that I am or have is deserving of glory. I should glory only in the fact that I know God. Romans 11, we move to the New Testament Romans 11, 36, a description of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, a beautiful passage that you all love. Look at the very end. For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. You know, you can read through the epistles and you often read some little phrase about giving God glory. And we just kind of, you know, we go right over it. That's just kind of a closing. But these contain truths about God to show us that he is deserving of glory. From this one we learn that God is the source of all things. So he is worthy of glory. He is the source of all things. He is worthy of glory. And then finally in Ephesians 3, this is at the the end of a prayer that Paul prays for the Christians at Ephesus to be strengthened with might through God's spirit that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that they would be rooted and grounded in love. And then he ends that with saying, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And here we see that God's ability exceeds our understanding. To him be the glory. God's ability exceeds our understanding. We are going to build on this throughout the weekend. It's kind of a a running message that I've divided into three parts. Um, but, But tonight, what I want us to get is the simple truth that I'm naturally a glory grabber and that God is the only true object of glory. Just to help you think, and we'll get into this more tomorrow, in what ways might we seek glory for ourselves. It might be overt, like the disciples or Nebuchadnezzar, maybe we just out and out brag. Maybe in conversations we are constantly turning the focus to ourselves. I I love to listen to young moms who are talking about how little sleep they got the night before, you know, and it's like story topping. Well, you know. And and we tend to, I'm not criticizing you young moms, okay, you need sleep um, and you need sympathy, but, We tend to, in conversations, try to turn the conversation, the focus to us. 
As I said earlier, we might highlight our own busyness, trying to portray some sort of importance. Often though, we're more covert, we're more subtle. Um, I'm not making accusations with these examples because these can be fine and can be healthy, but it's something to evaluate before the Lord. My motivation for staying fit or how I dress may be my desire for others to stand in awe of me. Even my serving in the church. Serving in the church a good thing? Yeah. But sometimes we are looking for praise and admiration and glory. Sometimes in our serving, we want to be the best in our gifting category. I think musicians especially struggle with this. Perhaps you're not an upfront person, so you're thinking, I'm fine. I don't even like to be in front of people. I don't want anybody looking at me. Can I suggest that even the behind the scenes servers can be glory grabbers? Imagine with me that you put on a baby shower at church and you, you pull out all the stops. It is Pinterest worthy. <laughs> and nobody tells you how great it was. Nobody admires the beautiful decor that you worked all week on. That's being a glory grabber. That focus is on wanting my accomplishment or my ability to be noticed and recognized and praised. Other ways that we might do this, perhaps there's, this one feels a little different, but it comes back to the same thing. Perhaps there is an area in your life in which you want your own way. You are not yielding to God's way for his glory, but you're stubbornly clinging to what you want or to what feels good to you. Holding on to sin, refusing to yield. Susan Hunt is the author of a book called Spiritual Mothering. And she highlights Mary in this book, and she says this of her, that Mary experienced fear and uncertainty when she found out she was going to have Jesus, but her desire for God's glory implies yielding to his way of ordering people and events. There's something in your life that you don't want and that you don't like and you want out. God has sovereignly allowed you to go through a crisis, a tragedy, and glorying in God, glorifying God is yielding to God's plan. And we'll talk about that more deeply tomorrow. The reality is that when you or I desire glory for ourselves, when we have attitudes that are self-seeking, characterized by selfish ambition, when through words and actions we draw attention to ourselves, when we stubbornly resist the circumstances God has brought into our lives, then we are robbing God of something that belongs to Him alone. We are elevating ourselves, we are elevating our will. How should we respond? For what we've covered tonight, I would just like to appeal to you 
to recognize our natural tendency. Say, okay, God, hadn't really thought about this much. When I was eight, I told you I wanted to live for your glory. I thought that took care of it. And then allow him to reveal it. I'm so thankful for the kindness of God in sanctification. And if you say, God, show me, he will, and it'll hurt. And then get a glimpse of the glory of God. Right here. Say, God, I want to see you. And as you read his word, look for him and get a glimpse of who he is. And then we each need to live with a constant awareness that he's the only true object of glory. Sadly, this is not a one-time decision. Like I jokingly said, you know, you were eight or 13 at camp and you said, Jesus, I want to live for you. I yield my life to you. I want to glorify you. And then we think it's taken care of. In actuality, this is a moment by moment thing. God, today, I want to glorify you. God, I'm about to have this conversation. I want to glorify you. God, I'm about to answer the phone. I want to glorify you in that. God, I'm about to discipline this child. I want to glorify God in that, even though I want to wring his neck. (laughs) A moment by moment, day by day. A song that has been an encouragement to me in the past few days is by City of Light, It's Only a Holy God. Who else commands all the host of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? Only a holy God. What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Only a holy God. Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. Lord, we naturally do desire admiration, recognition, praise, and glory. And yet we bow before you tonight and we acknowledge that you alone are worthy of glory. Teach us, give us understanding. Help us with whatever it is we're holding on to, to yield that to you and to moment by moment be seeking to glorify you with our lives. In your name we pray, amen.